Book the Third, Part Five of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Third, Part Five. The cheering message from Paula to Somerset sped through the loophole of Stancy Castle Keep, over the trees, along the railway, under bridges, across four counties, from extreme antiquity of environment to sheer modernism and finally landed itself on a table in Somerset's chambers in the midst of a cloud of fog. He read it, and, in the moment of reaction from the depression of his past days, clapped his hands like a child. Then he considered the date at which she wanted to see him. Had she so worded her dispatch, he would have gone that very day. But there was nothing to complain of in her giving him a week's notice. Pure maiden modesty might have checked her indulgence, in a too ardent recall. Time, however, dragged somewhat heavily along in the interim, and on the second day he thought he would call on his father and tell him of his success in obtaining the appointment. The elder Mr. Somerset lived in a detached house in the northwest part of fashionable London, and, ascending the chief staircase, the young man branched off from the first landing and entered his father's painting room. It was an hour when he was pretty sure of finding the well-known painter at work, and on lifting the tapestry he was not disappointed, Mr. Somerset being busily engaged with his back towards the door. Art and vitiated nature were struggling like wrestlers in that apartment, and art was getting the worst of it. The overpowering gloom pervading the clammy air, rendered still more intense by the height of the window from the floor, reduced all the pictures that were standing around to the wizened feebleness of corpses on end. The shadowy parts of the room behind the different easels were veiled in a brown vapour, precluding all estimate of the extent of the studio, and only subdued in the foreground by the ruddy glare from an open stove of Dutch tiles. Somerset's footsteps had been so noiseless over the carpeting of the stairs and landing that his father was unaware of his presence. He continued at his work as before, which he performed by the help of a complicated apparatus of lamps, candles and reflectors, so arranged as to eke out the miserable daylight, to a power apparently sufficient for the neutral touches on which he was at that moment engaged. The first thought of an unsophisticated stranger on entering that room could only be the amazing inquiry why a professor of the art of colour, which beyond all other arts requires pure daylight for its exercise, should fix itself on the single square league in habitable Europe to which light is denied at noonday for weeks in succession. Oh, it's you, George, is it? said the academician, turning from the lamps which shone over his bald crown at such a slant as to reveal every cranial irregularity. How are you this morning? Still a dead silence about your grand castle competition? Somerset told the news. His father duly congratulated him, and added genially, It is well to be you, George. One large commission to attend to, and nothing to distract you from it. I am bothered by having a dozen irons in the fire at once. People are so unreasonable. Only this morning, among other things, when you got your order to go on with your single study, I received a letter from a woman, an old friend whom I can scarcely refuse, begging me as a great favour to design her a set of theatrical costumes in which she and her friends can perform for some charity. It would occupy me a good week to go into the subject and do the thing properly. Such are the sort of letters I get. I wish, George, you could knock out something for her before you leave town. It is possibly impossible for me to do it with all this work in hand, and these eternal fogs to contend against. I fear costumes are rather out of my line, said the son. However, I'll do what I can. 
What period and country are they to represent? His father didn't know. He had never looked at the play of late years. It was Love's Labour's Lost. You'd better read it for yourself, he said, and do the best you can. During the morning, Somerset Junior found time to refresh his memory of the play and afterwards went and hunted up materials for designs to suit the same, which occupied his spare hours for the next three days. As these occupations made no great demands upon his reasoning faculties, he mostly found his mind wandering off to imaginary scenes at Stancy Castle. Particularly did he dwell at this time upon Paula's lively interest in the history, relics, tombs, architecture, nay, the very Christian names of the de Stancy line, and her artistic preference for Charlotte's ancestors instead of her own. Yet what more natural than that a clever, meditative girl, encased in the feudal lumber of that family, should imbibe at least an antiquarian interest in it? Human nature at bottom is romantic rather than ascetic, and the local habitation which accident had provided for Paula was perhaps acting as a solvent of the hard, morbidly introspective views thrust upon her in early life. Somerset wondered if his own possession of a substantial genealogy like Captain de Stancy's would have had any appreciable effect upon her regard for him. His suggestion to Paula of her belonging to a worthy strain of engineers had been based on his content with his own intellectual line of descent through Phidias, Ictinius and Callicrates, Chersiphron, Vitruvius, Willars of Cambrai, William of Wickham, and the rest of that long and illustrious role. But Miss Powers's marked preference for an animal pedigree led him to muse on what he could show for himself in that kind. These thoughts so far occupied him that when he took the sketches to his father on the morning of the 5th, he was led to ask, Has anyone ever sifted out our family pedigree? Family pedigree? Yes, have we any pedigree worthy to be compared with that of professedly old families? I never remember hearing of any ancestor further back than my great-grandfather. Somerset the Elder reflected, and said that he believed there was a genealogical tree about the house somewhere, reaching back to a very respectable distance. Not that I ever took much interest in it, he continued, without looking up from his canvas, but your great-uncle John was a man with a taste for those subjects, and he drew up such a sheet. He made several copies on parchment, and gave one to each of his brothers and sisters. What he gave my father is still in my possession, I think. Somerset said that he should like to see it, but half an hour's search about the house failed to discover the document, and the academician then remembered that it was in an iron box at his banker's. He'd used it as a wrapper for some title deeds and other valuable writings which were deposited there for safety. Why do you want it? he inquired. The young man confessed his whim to know if his own antiquity would bear comparison with that of another person whose name he did not mention. Whereupon his father gave him a key that would fit the said chest, if he meant to pursue the subject further. Somerset, however, did nothing in the matter that day, but the next morning, having to call at the bank on other business, he remembered his new fancy. It was about eleven o'clock. The fog, though not so brown as it had been on previous days, was still dense enough to necessitate lights in the shops and offices. When Somerset had finished his business in the outer office of the bank, he went to the manager's room. The hour being somewhat early, the only persons present in that sanctuary of balances, besides the manager who welcomed him, were two gentlemen, apparently lawyers, who sat talking earnestly over a box of papers. The manager, on learning what Somerset wanted, 
unlocked a door from which a flight of stone steps led to the vaults, and sent down a clerk and a porter for the safe. Before, however, they had descended far, a gentle tap came to the door, and in response to an invitation to enter, a lady appeared, wrapped up in furs to her very nose. The manager seemed to, to recognise her, for he went across the room in a moment, and sat her at a chair at the middle table, replying to some observation of hers with the words, Oh yes, certainly, in a deferential tone. I should like it brought up at once, said the lady. Somerset, who had seated himself at a table in a somewhat obscure corner, screened by the lawyers, started at the words. The voice was Miss Powers, and so plainly enough was the figure as soon as he examined it. Her back was towards him, and either because the room was only lighted in two places or because she was absorbed in her own concerns, she seemed to be unconscious of anyone's presence on the scene except the banker and herself. The former called back the clerk, and two other porters having been summoned, they disappeared to get whatever she required. Somerset, somewhat excited, sat wondering what could have brought Paula to London at this juncture, and was in some doubt if the occasion were a suitable one for revealing himself, her errand to her banker being possibly of a very private nature. Nothing helped him to a decision. Paula never once turned her head, and the progress of time was marked only by the murmurs of the two lawyers and the ceaseless clash of gold and rattle of scales from the outer room, where the busy heads of cashiers could be seen through the partition moving about under the globes of the gas lamps. Footsteps were heard upon the cellar steps, and the three men previously sent below staggered from the doorway, bearing a huge safe which nearly broke them down. Somerset knew that his father's box, or boxes, could boast of no such dimensions, and he was not surprised to see the chest deposited in front of Miss Power. When the immense accumulation of dust had been cleared off the lid, and the chest conveniently placed for her, Somerset was attended to, his modest box being brought up by one man unassisted and without much expenditure of breath. His interest in Paula was of so emotional a cast that his attention to his own errand was that of the most perfunctory kind. She was close to a gas standard, and the lawyers, whose seats had intervened, having finished their business and gone away, all her actions were visible to him. While he was opening his father's box, the manager assisted Paula to unseal and unlock hers, and he now saw her lift from it a Morocco case, which she placed on the table before her and unfastened. Out of it she took a dazzling object that fell like a cascade over her fingers. It was a necklace of diamonds and pearls, apparently of large size and many strands, though he was not near enough to see distinctly. When, satisfied by her examination that she had got the right article, she shut it into its case. The manager closed the chest for her, and when it was again secured, Paula arose, tossed the necklace into her handbag, bowed to the manager, and was about to bid him good morning. Thereupon he said with some hesitation, uh, Pardon one question, Miss Power. Do you intend to take those jewels far? Yes, she said simply, to Stancy Castle. You are going straight there? I have one or two places to call at first. I would suggest that you carry them in some other way, by fastening them into the pocket of your dress, for instance. But I'm going to hold the bag in my hand and never once let it go. The banker slightly shook his head. Suppose your carriage gets overturned, you would let it go then? 
Perhaps so. Or if you saw a child under the wheels just as you were stepping in, or if you were accidentally stumbled in getting out, or if there was a collision on the railway, you might let it go. Yes, I see. I was too careless. I thank you. Paul removed the necklace from the bag, turned her back to the manager, and spent several minutes in placing her treasure in her bosom, pinning it and otherwise making it absolutely secure. That's it said the grey-haired man of caution with evident satisfaction. There is not much danger now. You are not travelling alone? Paula replied that she was not alone, and went to the door. There was one moment during which Somerset might have conveniently made his presence known, but the juxtaposition of the bank manager and his own disarranged box of securities embarrassed him. The moment slipped by, and she was gone. In the meantime, he had mechanically unearthed the pedigree, and, locking up his father's chest, Somerset also took his departure at the heels of Paula. He walked along the misty street, so deeply musing as to be quite unconscious of the direction of his walk. What, he inquired of himself, could she want that necklace for so suddenly? He recollected a remark of Durst to the effect that her appearance on a particular occasion at Stancy Castle had been magnificent by reason of the jewels she wore, which proved that she had retained a sufficient quantity of those valuables of the castle for ordinary requirements. What exceptional occasion, then, was impending on which she wished to glorify herself beyond all previous experience? He could not guess. He was interrupted in these conjectures by a carriage nearly passing over his toes at a crossing in Bond Street. Looking up, he saw between the two windows of the vehicle the profile of a thickly mantled bosom on which a camellia rose and fell. All the remainder part of the lady's person was hidden, but he remembered that flower of convenient season as one which had figured in the bank parlour half an hour earlier today. Somerset hastened after the carriage and in a minute saw it stop opposite a jeweller's shop. Out came Paula, and then another woman, in whom he recognised Mrs. Birch, one of the ladies' maids at Stancy Castle. The young man was at Paula's side before she had crossed the pavement. End of Book the Third, Part 5